So we're still on the rampage at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer about the contact tracing data. And that is the first thing we'll be talking about on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm the editor, Chris Quinn, and I am here with two people who are largely responsible for a lot of the content we'll be discussing today. Editors Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Chris Warnowski has taken a couple of days off. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Monday. Oh, you sound so overjoyed to be back at the <laughs> back at the I never left. Yeah. All right, let's, yeah, that's true, Laura. You worked all weekend. Nice, nice weather weekend, but mm-hmm. there was some news. Let's get started. What is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's latest excuse for failing to deliver data from the state's contact tracing involving the coronavirus? Data that would identify the top ways the virus is spreading in Ohio. Jane Cahoon. The explanation that he provided last week, I still don't think it holds water. I mean, he provided more details about why he's not providing this data, but I have some thoughts. So let's let's go through what his explanation was. But for, we should also explain the contact tracing involves an army of people that the state and the county health departments have that run around to people that have COVID-19 to interview them, to find out who they've been in contact with, how they might have gotten it, and how they might have spread it. So they've been out there for several months now interviewing lots and lots of people, getting lots of information. We believe that if we had all of that data, we could show how it's spreading, but we can't get the data. Why not? Right. It certainly would be a goldmine, wouldn't it? So he just restated basically what the health department said, explaining that just unbelievably, this database is not searchable. It's 19 years old, and it was built to log just general disease information, like whether something was foodborne or not. And it just makes it impossible to get this kind of data that we want. And he said it needs to be upgraded, but but he didn't promise any sort of immediate action on that. So meanwhile, you know, we have to rely on this anecdotal information from individual health departments that talk to the state and kind of tell them what they're seeing out there. He actually said what we do is kind of a bypass the system and go directly to the health departments to get as much information as we can about where outbreaks are happening. Um, but, you know, I thought it was interesting. At one point, a reporter pressed him further on this, and, and he got a little fired up. And he basically just blamed it on both Democrats and Republicans for ignoring public health for years. And he said, we've got to stop ignoring public health, and this should be a big wake-up call. All right. Well, one, he said his friends in the media are getting frustrated. He's talking about us. We're the only ones screaming for this. Two, 2001 is not the dark ages of spreadsheets and and computer software. If they got computer software in 2001, I'm stunned that it doesn't have a data function because in 2001, we were all awash in spreadsheets. Three, Here's the simple thing. Here's the proposal. Okay, you've got all this narrative data, this stuff that can't be searched. How about you hire a college intern or two to create the spreadsheet? <laughs> a little checkbox, right? You read the paragraph, read what they say. Oh, they got it in a backyard barbecue. Let's put an X in the backyard barbecue box. Oh, <laughs> they got it when they went to a restaurant with a big crowd of people and there was no social distancing. Restaurant, bar, you create the categories, you read through it, and you quickly create the data. And here's the thing. I'll even go further. They don't want to spend the money on a college intern. Cleveland.com will volunteer <laughs> reporters. 
to sign a confidentiality agreement to, to go through this data and create exactly what I'm talking about. I bet you it wouldn't take more than a few days. And then, and then Ohioans would know what the greatest risks are of spread. I just, I reject this. I reject the hands in the air. Oh, well, we can't do it. It's the biggest public health <laughs> crisis of our age. And we're just going to go without the data. I, I'm, I'm yeah, stunned by this. I had people text me from our subtext account, which I send messages for free every day about coronavirus. And they were like, and so they were like, why isn't there just like a Google spreadsheet? Like everybody could fill out the same form all at the same time. Like the subtexters were coming up with examples and they're like, here's what they're doing in some countries in Africa. Like, why can't we get Highland software, you know, to do a do good project? Like <laughs> they were all thinking of ideas. This isn't hard. This really isn't hard. They have the interviews. They have put it somewhere. And if somebody created a quick spreadsheet, you could put this together and have a definitive list of things, the causes of this virus. And what I guess what was surprising in his Friday briefing was the just surrender to, yeah, we can't do it. Well, yeah, you can do it. acted kind of mad about the whole thing. Um, you know, there, the, the failures are starting to pile up when it comes to data and getting ahead of this virus. For instance, they, they were supposed to be doing this random antibody testing throughout the state, and he just kind of shrugged his shoulders over that one and said, oh, well, you know, we're behind on that too. And Lieutenant Governor John Houston said that they, they'd have a report on that in early September, like five months after they announced this initial testing. And then we all know, you know, what happened with their unemployment system. And then the other thing was, remember the, the testing of the sewage? Like that thing is moving at a snail's pace, you know, where you could really get out ahead of outbreaks. And, you know. Here's, here's the other reason I have serious doubt about what he's saying. When the daycare issue came up a couple of weeks ago in a briefing, they had exact specific oh. numbers of how many cases had spread from daycare. So if they know exactly how many kids and workers at daycare got it, they must have a tracking system of some sort that has numbers in it. So I, you know, again, I threw the flag last week. That flag is still out on the field. <laughs> it's, it's time to either go through this system and create the database or use whatever tools are in it to get the numbers we need. Ohioans deserve better from the government. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why should unemployed Ohioans pause before getting excited about President Donald Trump's executive order increasing payments by $400 a week? Laura Johnston, Congress has been a standstill after the $600 a week extra money went away a week or so ago. They haven't been able to come up with it. It's left a whole lot of people on the lurch. Donald Trump over the weekend said, I'm issuing an executive order to make it 400 bucks, but there's a big caveat. He wants some of that money to come from the states. So what's the story? Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. This kind of came out a little unexpectedly on Saturday. Um Trump was speaking from his national golf course in New Jersey, which you think is just bad optics when you're talking about unemployment, but whatever, and said <laughs> that, um, that he's going to do something that Congress couldn't get it done. And he's going to you know, do this executive order to give an extra $400 a week, not the 600 they were getting, but 400. But the states are going to have to chip in 25% of that or $100. And this is the state is already paying their own portion of unemployment, which I believe is $480 a week. And so 
DeWine, Mike DeWine actually went on uh, CNN's State of the Union on Sunday and addressed this with Dana Bash. And he said, they're looking at it right now to see if we can do this. And then he like went out of his way to thank Trump, who you could argue kind of threw governors under the bus and said, the president had a difficult situation. He had a blunt instrument. That's the executive order. He's trying to do something. So this is not a done deal, uh, at least in Ohio. And he's really asking for Congress to get back and negotiate. It's out the way he was talking, saying, we're at war. This is a virus. It's an invader. He's like asking Congress, like, go back and fix this. I don't want to spend any of our money on this. Well, and there there are people that are saying that Donald Trump actually doesn't have the power to issue the executive order he did. And Trump might very well know that, but think that by doing so, he's used a hammer that forces Congress to go back and allocate the money for it. Uh, it is that the state is not a flush with cash. Right. And so looking for the state to kick in a quarter of that would be would be a challenge. But maybe maybe there was brilliance in what Donald Trump here did. <laughs> no, think about oh, it. Boy. I'm going to issue an executive order that makes Congress look bad. And I'm going to help get support from the governors by saying they should kick in money too. So not only has he put Congress into a jackpot, He's put every governor into the jackpot to call on Congress exactly like DeWine did and say, come on, do your damn job. Uh, you know, th- this might have been a very smart move by the uh, by the president. I mean, I love that you're like Donald Trump might have known that what he was doing was illegal. I mean, like that is just an out, you know, a statement. But um, I don't know if, if it was brilliant, then that is then all power to him. It just seems like it was kind of out, you know, just out there. And here you go. You're going to have to pay part of this burden. You already are really shouldering this burden already. And Ohio has already borrowed money from the federal government to pay its unemployment. So, and you know, these numbers, they just keep going up. If Congress comes back this week and does something about this, Donald Trump's going to be able to to claim victory from the golf course. You're (laughs) listening this week in the CLE. How bad is the news on the legal front for First Energy a few weeks after it was identified as the funding source for a $60 million bribery scheme involving former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and the utilities aging nuclear plants? Things just keep mounting up for First Energy, Jane Cahoon. The lawsuits look like they're coming hot and heavy. What What are the two developments that happened at the tail end of last week? Right. So a longtime shareholder sued the Utilities Board of Directors in in federal court, saying that the board failed in their oversight to to prevent this massive corruption scheme. And the shareholder is a California woman, and she sued the board of directors on behalf of the company in what's called a derivative lawsuit. But anyway, her claim is that they, they didn't establish the internal controls that would flag these huge payments that totaled $60 million that First Energy affiliates poured into this political nonprofit controlled by Larry Householder. And uh, it said that the board also um, failed to exercise reasonable and prudent supervision over the company's management and policies. Now, First Energy said what it's been saying for the past few weeks, that they are cooperating with the investigation and they have high ethical standards, et cetera. <laughs> um, they, they have not been charged. We should note that. And then the, the second development, which is perhaps a little more intriguing, is that Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost 
has told the Ohio House and some other state offices to to preserve records related to the passage of House Bill 6, that nuclear bailout bill, in preparation for a possible lawsuit against the parties that the FBI has accused of of all this corruption. And I guess there's a an Ohio civil statute that would allow him to sue for damages resulting from racketeering. So well, that's his, that's his job, right? If Ohioans yeah, yeah. lose money because of an illegal scheme, it's Dave Yost's job to go and recover that money. I've been wondering if Yost would, would step up now that, that, you know, he didn't catch the scheme. The feds caught the scheme, which was in his backyard, but as a law and order guy, the top law enforcement guy in Ohio, he has a big role. And I, it'll if he goes after this through civil through civil um, lawsuits, it, it could be very expensive for not only the politicians but for First Energy. Yeah, he he didn't specify in this letter that he sent on the preserving the records that whom he would be suing. But so we'll have to stay tuned for that. It's going to be really interesting. Well, let's face it. If you're going to go for the money, you're going to go for the ones with the deep pockets. I mean, some of the legislators that have come up in this probably don't have a whole lot of money. It depends. The other thing is, is how do you estimate what we've lost? You know, how, how do you estimate what we've lost by not having green energy standards? How do you estimate what we've lost for lack of competition? It, it, that, that could be one of the more interesting um, uh, legal cases to, to proceed. And Dave Yost likes doing things that are somewhat radical. So I, I can't wait to see what comes of that because I think it could be interesting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So does it look like that questionable Cuyahoga County contract that was proposed and mysteriously withdrawn last week, is it actually legitimate? Laura Johnston, we've we've talked a lot about uh, no-bid contracts and other questionable uh, moves that county government has taken that have moved around transparency. This contract was a little bit different. It looked like there was a, a very big conflict of interest that may have been discovered at the last minute. And that's why it was yanked back just as it was going to be approved. Of course, they were very silent, lacking their transparency about why. We now know more about it. And, and it seems like maybe this is okay. Yeah, it does seem like the rules were followed, which makes you wonder why Budish's administration just withdrew the contract without any explanation. Why didn't they just respond to county council's questions about a conflict of interest with a very detailed explanation that everything was on the up and up? It's not like this is a huge contract. It was like a $6,000 extension. But so Inspector General Mark Griffin said Robert Corey had disclosed this relationship with Point Blank Solutions prior to him taking the job. He recused himself from handling the contract and he did everything right. And then so Chief of Staff Bill Mason is the one who pulled it. He said Wednesday he pulled the request so they could confirm what they already knew. But you think they would have had that ready to begin with. (laughs) Yeah, if, once it goes to the Board of Control. But but in the good news is, I mean, they pulled it for a good reason. They wanted mm-hmm. to be sure. And the contract looks like it, it passes muster. So this is not in the same class of no, yeah. no big contract and other nonsense that the Buddhist administration has been pulling. This we don't need to year. add this to the list. Okay. <laughs> Take it out of the list. The ever-growing list of lack of transparency and questionable decisions. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
What are the chances that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine will take back the authority on whether to close schools at the beginning of the academic year and actually close them? Jen Cahoon, Mike DeWine, has been very explicit for months saying that schools are locally run, and while he'll offer guidelines, he's not in charge of them. But then he said something last week that made you wonder. Yeah, he gave a little hint. He he said he trusts the schools to do the right thing, but then he said there's a possibility the state would shut schools down by by region or statewide if there was enough of a threat. And he said, we're not going to get there until we see what the facts are. And that's about as much as he gave us. Well, let let me ask this. (laughs) Based on the fact that just about every school district in the country that's opened has had an outbreak, (laughs) is that enough of a threat? I mean, it's the the news is replete with anecdotes of the school opened and they got it. There was the one last week where some kid took a picture of the jammed hallway and no one's Mm -hmm. wearing masks, nobody. And then they suspend the kid and then they get flogged. So they unsuspend the kid. And now I think there's six people in that school that came down with it. So, I mean, it's just... When do they? When do you sit back and yeah. say? You know, he didn't say what the threshold would be, um, but he did note that Ohio has about a five point five percent positivity rate, which is higher than they would like, you know, for going back to school. And he just keeps, you know, singing the same tune about mask up and social distance and come on, you know, we got to do this. So. I well, think he's holding out hope that that the numbers are going to go down and and we can make this happen. But he's got that you know, he's got that tool and his you know, at his disposal to use. Well, time is running out. Let me turn to my sparring partner on school with you, <laughs> Laura Johnson. So Laura, I'm going to back off right now. You guys go at it. We came really close in Cuyahoga County last week to moving out of the red zone and into mm-hmm. the orange. So, is there a possibility? that Cuyahoga will move into the orange zone and the Board of Health will rescind its recommendation that schools open remotely for the first nine weeks, throwing all of these districts that have responded to their original recommendation into chaos. There is a chance, but I don't know that I mean, you cannot predict that's what's going to happen. And we're still over the higher incidence rate, which is what it's keeping us in the red. Now, so some schools like Akron is in Summit County. They're in the orange. They've already decided that they're going to go remote. So it, it's not completely dependent. But I know my district said if, if we go into the orange and the Board of Health says we're, we're taking down our recommendation, then we are 100% going to school. So there are a whole lot of parents that are hoping that that can happen. But And, and that would not... That wouldn't the, the chaos of a last minute decision to go back would not cause problems in your household. You'd just be overjoyed because your kids are going. I back would to just school. be overjoyed. I mean, I think there's just been so much chaos. Even even the schools that are saying, "Okay, now we're going to go remote." There's so there's so many unknowns about what that's going to look like. I, I think everybody is knowing that this is going to be a roller coaster of a year, and they are just they're ready to to get it started. All right, you've been all gung-ho about sending the kids back to school. You have to have noticed these stories that I'm talking about, about school yes. after school with outbreaks. That's not, that's not changing your mind at all. Like maybe remote is a good idea for the first nine weeks. You're sticking by, get them into the schools. I, it's such a tough decision, and I, I feel bad for these school boards that are trying to make it. But if there was a way we could do it safely, 
then yes, but there is no guarantee. And that, you know, that's a really a sticking point. I'm going to do whatever the, the board says is okay and trust the experts on this. I'm not going to send my kids remotely if they're open. That is an option in most school districts at this point. Um, but yeah, that is a, a tough, tough choice. So Jane Cahoon, that that might be what drives a Mike DeWine decision is all of this chaos and confusion. He could look at all that and, and finally step forward and say, look, let, let's have sanity. Let's do X, either open or close, <laughs> whatever he picks. Um, yeah, I think, you know, often he's followed the science here. And if the science tells him that this is a disaster waiting to happen, then then I think he will be pushed to that point where he's got to he's got to step in. Well, and he did talk a lot about the rural counties on on Friday that, you know, Mercer County is way up. You know, Hamilton is out of the the red zone. So urban counties are getting this under control. They're wearing their masks. It seems like in the places where people are saying it's my freedom, you can't make me. That's where the incidents going up. And that could be a bigger problem than the urban areas. Well, it's August 10th, so we are right. really There's not a whole lot of time. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Metro Health handle offensive graffiti that turned up on the site of its huge hospital construction project? Laura Johnson, we've seen multiple instances of graffiti of late, offensive graffiti. Uh, something showed up that was anti-Mexican at Metro Health last week, and they wasted no time dealing with it. What did they do? Yeah, they stopped construction on this new hospital. Um, a site supervisor had reported the graffiti on a portable toilet. They didn't tell us exactly what was written, said it was offensive to Mexican-Americans and was racially motivated. They have zero tolerance, so they shut it down. And they're starting an investigation on who it could be. Because the site is cordoned off with fences, It they believe it was someone in the job site, that it couldn't have just been someone from outside. So they are set to resume work today. And this is the $946 million campus transformation project. And it's what it's supposed to do is spur inclusive development in the surrounding neighborhood of Cleveland's West side. So partners on this project include the Spanish American committee, the Cleveland building and trades council and others on the Latino construction program. So this is really um, just a slap to the whole idea of the project. Well, and it didn't, it costs money to shut it down. So I, I mean, the message, I think, to the to whoever did it must be very clear that there's so little tolerance for this, that this is what results. People don't get paid for a couple of days because we stop the work. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they have another incident of it. Uh, you don't normally see this kind of a reaction, emphatic reaction to deal with this kind of thing. And uh, I'd just be interested to see if zero tolerance now, now works. It's this week in the CLE. How are unemployed Ohioans dealing with the loss of the extra $600 a week they were receiving as part of the CARES Act, which provided relief to people harmed by the coronavirus pandemic? Jane Cahoon, when we talk about unemployment so often, we talk about the numbers, the claims and the number of people that have problems getting through the computer system. But we took a look at the actual people and how they're dealing with the hardship of this. What did we find when we did that? Yeah, Sabrina Eaton talked to a number of folks who have really depended on that extra 600 bucks a week to to get by. And it really put a human face on this situation. And it showed the nuances and the, the different situations that people have found themselves in. It's it's really not like a one size fits all type of type of argument. And I mean, people are depending on this money for 
their rent, their food, their bills, their car payments, their insurance and, and other necessities. And, you know, for some of them, the money was about equivalent to what they were earning, which kind of plays into this debate between Democrats and Republicans about whether the government is giving people an incentive to not come back to work by by paying them what what they were earning. But it's more complicated than that. I mean, the people were saying, you know, it's not our fault. It's the virus's fault. We're at home here. You know, one guy had a medical condition that, you know, would really put him at risk for going back. And she even talked to one guy who actually was making more money from unemployment than than waiting tables at two different restaurants. And he made kind of an interesting economic argument saying that, you know, this money allowed him to pay off some debts and fix his car and, you know, go to some doctor's appointments. And he he says that this is going to, you know, put more money into the economy and that that um, it's going to, you know, consumer spending is going to plummet if if people don't have this money to put back into the economy. Yeah, when the story of COVID-19 is finally written, if it ever ends, that $600 a week could could go down as one of the, the smartest moves a government ever made for the citizens because it kept people moving. It kept the, right. the whole economy afloat. You know, I don't know how we're paying for it, but th- this has not been a depression. And so now that they don't have that money, I guess the the incentive to not go back to work is why the president is suggesting a $400 amount going forward instead of a $600 amount. But it was, it was an interesting story because you really did see how human beings are dealing with the hardship of the coronavirus and how much the government's help meant. Right. I mean, one person, you know, keep in mind, self-employed people were are not eligible for the regular unemployment. So she talked to one mm. woman who the $600 was, that was all she was getting. And she was caring for her elderly parents who lived close by. And she was very reluctant to go back into the workforce to, you know, the, so that she could protect them. And it's just, as I said, just a, a lot of different situations here represented. Yeah, Sabrina did a nice job. It's a good piece. Check it out on cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. How high did complaints about masks and social distancing increase after Cleveland mandated that everyone wear a mask on July 15th? Lord Johnston, there have been all sorts of calls coming into the hotlines about people not wearing masks, but that July 15th set off a flurry of them. Right. And that was when the mandate um, jumped. So mask complaints are up 75% in Cleveland. Social distancing complaints are up, up by half. And the city's public health department data, show, and they're giving us contract tracing data, which is great, shows that the activity at homes is generating the most complaints. But there's a lot targeting restaurants and bars. Town Hall leads the entire city with about 55 complaints. But this list is really enlightening. Cuyahoga County Administration offices had 11 complaints. St. Ignatius, Westside Market, Jack Cleveland Casino, the uh, RTA had 31. So um, we've got a list on Bob Higgs' story, and it's kind of enlightening. Yeah, and and I'm just not sure other than seeing the complaints. I'm not sure what what public health officials can do about it. I mean, it's not, if I call about, you're not wearing a mask, they're not going to get out there to go to you and say, (laughs) hey, put your mask on. Um, And, and, 
maybe they go to the, the establishment at some point and say, look, we're getting too many complaints about you. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Do, do we know, and I'm putting you on the spot here, are some of the mass complaints about how people don't wear them over their noses? Because what I've noticed everywhere I've gone is people are wearing masks, but they're not covering their noses, which seems really dumb because the nose is a way that the virus gets into you. Right. No, I don't know exactly what the um, complaints are, but I do believe the city is giving out some masks to kind of help with it. They they can find these businesses. They can even shut them down, although I don't think they've done that yet. But the idea is they're trying to be work with the businesses and people to get them to follow the rules rather than just like fine them and shut them down. So, but no, you're right. I mean, We've all seen people wearing masks around their necks, on their head, you know, like it's supposed to be over your mouth and your nose in order to work. So I just, I don't see that when they are enforcing masks, they tell you to put one on. They're not telling you exactly how you have to wear it, but even my kids can, can wear them the right way. So everybody should be able to. Yeah. We almost need a public relations campaign on how to wear masks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're less than three months from the date of the presidential election. So why is Ohio's Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, talking about purging the voter rolls? Jane Coon, this was kind of strange. This is the period where you're trying to get people to vote. You're trying to, to, to boost voter participation. And yet the Secretary of State is talking about getting voters off the rolls. I didn't get it. What's the logic here? Well, first, I should say that this purge is not going to take place before the November election, which... Seems like a good thing, given all the other uncertainties surrounding the election. But Frank LaRose, the secretary of state, does soon plan to ask local boards of election to to prepare lists of inactive voters uh, in in preparation to to purge, you know, something like 120,000 voter registrations of inactive or dead voters. Now, the purge is going to occur December 7th. As I said, it's not until after the election, but they want to publicize the plans now to give infrequent voters kind of a chance to get on top of their registrations. He, the way LaRose described it, he said it's, it's like, you know, crowdsourcing. They're, they're going to publish a list of all these people and then these voter groups will start contacting people and say, Hey, fix your registration. Uh, or they'll uncover errors like they did, like they did the last time. Yeah, and I have to say, Fr- Frank LaRose has done a pretty admirable job about spreading the word on this. I mean, last time when he put it all out there, there were a bunch of mistakes and people were criticizing him for that. But I, I thought it's pretty noble to put that out there, let people find the mistakes so that we don't make them ultimately, which was what his goal was. So we'll have to. But a lot of people would argue that this process is just not necessary. The, the incidence of voter fraud is it's rare and it, this tends to discriminate against younger and poorer people and non-white voters who might be more likely to move frequently and less likely to, to keep their registrations up to date. So it's still going to be a controversial process, no matter how you look at it. Can I Although, add? Go ahead, Laura. Johnson. I was just going to say that um, DeWine addressed this on CNN yesterday, too, because obviously all the issue about mail-in voting. And he said he has absolute faith that you always have to guard against voter fraud, but he, he basically acknowledged it's not a problem in Ohio. I do think there is a value to trying to have an accurate voter roll so that you can have an accurate turnout number. If you have a bunch of no longer accurate registrations, 
it makes the voter turnout look smaller than it actually is. So I, I get why they, the, the, there's a goal here of trying to keep it somewhat accurate. But the, the, like you said, Jane, there's very little fraud. And the danger is somebody will be deprived of the right to vote, which we should guard against zealously. It's this week in the CLE. All right. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Do you think the governor will take me up on my offer to have reporters do the contact tracing data? I mean, I think your phone's going to ring as soon as the uh, podcast goes out. <laughs> I was just yeah. going to say the same thing, or you'll get yeah. a text. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. But we'll see. The offer is good. And if he doesn't want to use our reporters, he could hire some interns to do it. Somebody should be able to go through that data and make it work. This week in the CLE, we'll be back tomorrow. Thank you for listening. <laughs>